Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Only V, the gorilla. And we got CJ with me and the man who needs no introduction. If you don't know who he is, you've been living under a rock. If you don't know the Dark Raven of the Deep State himself, the one and only Fellas is here. This is going to be a two-hour special, is it not? It is. Doubleheader. Good. So, boys and girls, grab your notebooks. Get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be a lot to listen to, a lot to unpack, and a lot of information to absolutely digest. And you're going to need to write it down. So you can digest it over and over again, because a lot of times I tell people this all the time. When you listen to a Vellus broadcast, okay, you can't just listen to it once. You got to go back and listen to it again and maybe again right after that, because there's so much information that he unpacks that he goes through that very few people really even cover the depth of what Vellus covers on a typical Friday. It's a lot of stuff. So get ready, strap on your seatbelts, grab your favorite roast of coffee, and we're going to get into it. Vellas, CJ, gentlemen, good morning. How are you guys? Doing wonderful. C- Doing wonderful. Hey, CJ, you're not on the road. No, I got I got a Friday afternoon off. It's kind of nice. I have, I have visions of you from the 1970s rolling down the road with like a uh, ham radio antenna, a big whip antenna off the back of your car. It's cruising down the highway. Occasionally that happens. <laughs> well, thank you, V, for the 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 uh, incredibly gracious introduction. And, uh, you know, and you don't have to listen to my shows as frequently as you used to due to the audio problems, because I've heard from a number of you that the the new the new unit I'm using is working much better. I hope that. Hope that continues. So here's what we're doing. Um, we got a, a two-hour program today, or, or maybe a little less. We'll see. Um, and the first half of this, or the, the first portion of this, the first hour, is going to be an assessment of our situation globally. And then the second half will be more our traditional program. And as I'm fond of saying, um, what do you call it? I've been constantly editing this material all week because something would happen and it's like, okay, now I got to cut that out of there and move that for next week and use this now. So with that, here we go. Um, So before I get into the main topic of this first half, I wanted to provide kind of my definitions of different types of methods to interpret world events. Um, In international affairs study or foreign affairs study, they've got a couple of different models they use. One of those is known as the realism school. It kind of views the world from the perspective of balances of power and maintaining peace basically through, I wouldn't say strength, but, but as long as you've got two major powers and they both can equally hurt each other, you're probably going to maintain stability and peace. That school of thought is kind of controversial in some circles. And so there are folks who both agree with it and others who don't. There's another one that's the comparative analysis school. They don't really get into good, bad, or indifferent. They're just comparing different systems, different models, what have you, and, and kind of taking them apart that way. Um, 
Then one of my favorites, which is which is very popular in South America. I don't mean favorite as I like it, but but it's what's known as dependency theory. And this came out of uh, Jorge Castaneda, out of Mexico, um, who later was part of one of Mexico's presidential administrations, which I always found interesting. Um, but Jorge and a number of other academics down in South America, they came up with what was known as dependency theory, which is kind of funny because if you um, read dependency theory from the interpretation of the book, The Devil's Banker, uh, or Tales of an Economic Hitman, um, those authors just kind of are like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's the way it is. Uh, yeah. What dependency theory gets into is, is that I'm way oversimplifying, but but that the South American countries or the Southern Cone, as it's known in some circles, um, they're dependent on major powers, mostly the United States, but also Europe, that they're kind of impotent to make their own decisions because the United States is just such an overwhelming power. They can't really carve out their own their own niche in the world. Case in point, um, major American corporation comes to, let's say, Argentina or even Bolivia those corporations use the money that's available in the banks of that country, drying up capital or money and thereby crowding out other, you know, native businesses because major corporations would rather borrow money from, from banks in the country because they have awesome credit than leverage money out of the United States. So this creates a form of dependency, et cetera. So, um, and those are, I don't want to say bland and dry, they're not, because uh, the dependency theorists, they're the folks who gave us the term political economy, which is a pseudo, almost Marxist kind of view of the world. Although it's funny because I hear <laughs> political economy on places like CNBC. Um, there are many mm-hmm. folks who aren't happy with the realism school because it's like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're wanting to create a world of just, just massive power where everything might collapse at any minute if somebody gets too much of an advantage on somebody else. From a rogue news perspective, and I'm, I'm uh, what do you call it, I, CJ and, and V will step in if I overstep my bounds here. Um, rogue news and many of the folks that are on rogue, uh, we cover more of the hidden variables in the political and economic environment internationally, not just the United States. So if I was to use a math formula analogy, we believe there's variables missing from approaches like the ones I identified used in traditional analysis that there's other players and stuff out there that that are either ignored or not paid attention to or are controversial and folks don't want to get at that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline kind of my three types of kind of how I view people who study the world. And then from there, I'm going to get into this topic of, of what's going on right now. So type one is what I call the traditionalists. Uh, this is high school history and current affairs classes. This is academia at university levels. This is writers of a lot of the literature on these topics. Um, they see history, the international environment, economics as kind of machinery. Uh, global systems operate mechanically, function according to whether the system is a democracy or a dictatorship, whether it's a free market or a socialist economic system. It just kind of functions. You know, what's in the textbook is the way it is. And what you see is what you get. And world leaders are actually leading and are actually in charge. Um, that uh, approach also assumes all the world leaders are rational actors making rational decisions. The second type is what I call the realists and the model modelists. They start with content from the work of the traditionalists, but they assess international affairs and economics based on non-traditional data. They focus on balances of power and demographics behind political behavior, which again gets into the kind of the realism school. They leverage unique models to conduct analysis as well as those with new theories for analysis. Uh, in the world of economics or demographics, 
an example of, of people who operate in this universe are, are the folks over at Freakonomics, which originally was just a book, but now the writers of that book, uh, it was two guys, if I recall correctly, and they've got their own consulting group now, and they've got a webpage where they publish a lot of their, their stuff. That book has kind of turned into a business for them. Um, but the way, the way those authors and the way the folks in that, that camp kind of view the world is they, they just absorb huge amounts of data including non-traditional data. And they go with the results no matter how upsetting or controversial. Uh, case in point from that first, first book, one of their big takeaways was, why do drug dealers live with their mothers? Well, they have to because it's a franchised model. That, that ran into massive upset with both people on the conservative and, and liberal end of the political spectrum of the United States because conservatives and liberals had a vested interest in either social programs or locking everybody in prison. Uh, they didn't want to hear what Freakonomics came up with. And so, you know, it became uh, controversial. In the uh, international affairs arena, this also includes people like George Friedman, uh, his original work founding Stratfor, and then also when Stratfor kind of strayed from what he felt was its original purpose, he left and created a a group called Geopolitical Futures. Uh, Friedman follows a variety of approaches based on uh, what he considers the criticality of geography. And I've read a lot of, I mean, I don't think there's a Friedman book I don't own. And he's, he's got a lot of really logical stuff about the way geography kind of both enables and impairs certain countries or other interests from achieving their aims. Friedman is also, and others like him, they're willing to consider ethnic or geographic attitudes. Um, traditionalists don't like that because they consider that either racist or biased and they want to avoid that. Uh, another person in this group, uh, my thanks to Raven Six, um, is a gentleman named Peter Zihan, who is kind of growing out there in the coverage I'm noticing of of his work. He's been around for a while. Um, it's interesting, too, about Peter, because ironically, he's a former colleague of Friedman's. Uh, he wrote Friedman many, many years ago, and Friedman was still running Stratfor along with his, his partner. Uh, Zihan wrote, a, wrote an email and then picked up the phone and called uh, Friedman and said, basically, I disagree with about a third of everything you say. And after Friedman got done being mad at him, uh, Friedman hired him. So uh, Zihan was was working with Friedman for like 12 years before he went kind of out on his own. Um, type 2 analysts are not as concerned about whether an- analysis is fair or controversial as are the traditionalists. Some of this fo- the folks in this camp also will lean heavily into the third level or model. I'd also put Patrick Ryan uh, in type two, but he certainly straddles type three. Now, type three is what I call elite dynamics. And this is basically what, if I'd ever completed my PhD, this is, this is what it was going to be on. Uh, you are here. Welcome to Rogue. Um, this is where researchers consider groups and individuals the first two levels do not consider to a great degree or they don't believe exist or they believe are negligible. Um, analysts and commentators in this group believe the influence of elites in international affairs and economics is vastly underestimated. Uh, they also believe non-governmental organizations or NGOs, depending on who it is, can have far greater power than they're given credit. Um, people in this camp, we uh, believe there are little-known organizations who influence world events behind the scenes. We also believe that corruption and blackmail and assassination are as much a part of the global environment as other factors. Um, we also believe world events are not purely both uh, anticipated and unanticipated events, 
and then countries or elites just try to take advantage after the fact. We we believe uh, the world is a bit like a film by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, you can watch the movie, <laughs> and you just watched what you watched about that story, or you can dig and find more hidden elements in in the Kubrick film that that he's saying things to you, but you may not be picking it up. Right. Um, an example of somebody in this space, uh, beyond obviously those of us here at Rogues, mm-hmm. many others that are out there, is an uh, analyst I've mentioned once or twice before. And this is a gentleman by the name of A.J. Singh Kapoor. Um, Kapoor is known in the real high-end finance world, and I mean billionaires, for his research into global elites, which is known as plutocratic study. Uh, plutocratic study is also known by its other name, Synarchy. Um, I would tell you that in, in like, if I went back to my graduate school in international affairs and I said, hey, uh, I'm a big advocate of plutocratic study and, and synergy, I'd either have a lot of eyes rolling or people achieving low Earth orbit. Uh, why are you even here if you believe in that nonsense? But, but Kapoor has paid a lot of money. He's been a Merrill, anal- a Merrill Lynch analyst for a number of years, and he kind of floats around to different financial firms to do, to do his thing. And then again, in, in the type three elite dynamic world of analysis, there's a bunch of authors out there, which really is the only place those folks can get their their work produced because academia doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And in fact, quite honestly, you know, traditional um, publishing houses do not want to deal with these folks. So you've you've got odd publishing houses and so on that produce produce their works. So the topic for the first half of this show, based on kind of that narrative I just gave you, is um, our current risks. And why how many poles of influence we have in the world matters to the Great Reset. And by poles, I don't mean Poland. I mean unipolar, bipolar, and so on. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. So the first item is the U.S. president. Um, we have a chief executive who is mentally unfit for office and a vice president who's more dangerous than he is. Uh, I continue to believe that there's going to be an effort to remove both of them. Uh, there's a definite increase in the frequency of quote-unquote disclosures about the Biden family, uh, which now also includes Joe's brother, Frank, as well as Joe and Hunter, and a definite narrative is being painted. Um, if you really want to dig more into the topic of the Biden family, I would I would um, direct you again to Ryan Dawson's poster that he's got called the Biden Family Crime Syndicate. I've, I've got one myself and it's, it's extensive. I mean, I don't know of a member of the family that isn't, isn't into something that's, that's off the books. Um, the media, and I mean all forms of media, are laying the groundwork for the upcoming transition. And therefore, you have to know this is coming. Um, what that outcome is going to be is hard to say at this point, but it is coming. You know, he could step down or be removed after the midterms, depending on how the voting goes. Just we'll just have to see, but he cannot. For even even the people that are achieving their aims by having him in office, he cannot stay in office much much longer. Second item is inflation. Covered a lot of that last week. Um, we discussed last week like what kind of inflation is going on, but um, you know at Rogue we've been saying for more than a year. The other aspect of inflation is, because I certainly saw this in years of study of South America, one of the many factors about inflation is it weakens debt. The last 20 years, many major countries have run up massive debts. And what do countries do when they have huge debts? Well, inflation is a tactic. It's not pretty, but it works. It hurts, it hurts people who are most vulnerable to inflation. But if you're a government and you're looking at things from the perspective of a government, it'll work. 
Just ask Greece or Italy when they had their own currencies before they were on the euro, or Brazil and Argentina back in the late 70s and the 1980s. That was how they could repay large debts as long as they were denominated in their own currencies. Now, there's a lot of math behind that, but just suffice to say that's the basics. We certainly have proof of inflation in various sectors of the U.S. economy being intentionally increased. And again, we covered last week uh, the, the transportation fuels, particularly in the form of diesel. Um, and you know, my takeaway on that is, is if we can see what's going on with roadway diesel, I can only imagine what's going on with the cost of rail or cargo ship fuel right now. We know this behavior is intentional, and it includes more than just fuel, and we'll kind of get into that as we go on. So the next item is farmers. Now, Matthew Errett's program this week, he covered farmers being told to destroy crops and livestock or else they risk a number of things, including government payouts in case this year they encounter serious problems at the end of the season. Not to mention we have the Zero Hedge article from this week about the drought situation out west. Uh, The federal government is getting involved as the already challenged situation out west is becoming more so. And based on my drive through at least West Texas and, and New Mexico in the spring, I can, I can tell you again from looking at it with my own eyes, if, if this is where those states or those areas of those states are right now in the, the early April timeframe, uh, man, I don't even want to think about what July is like. And of course, a specific uh, data point is Lake Powell on the Arizona-Utah border is now so low, the hydroelectric dam cannot produce the kind of output it normally does. And, of course, that moves us into the fertilizer topic for farmers, and the fertilizer topic has a couple components to it. We have multiple stories in the media right now discussing the denial of fertilizer shipments via rail, and that's critical because we're moving into planting season, at least in in the Northern Hemisphere. On that point, I would say we've got to watch our biases and not let ourselves get distracted, and the fertilizer topic is is a good one. All of them are areas where we've got to double-check our thinking, but but the fertilizer topic's a good one. Without getting into the many reasons behind why the fertilization or fertilizer situation exists, it's important to note that both Chinese and Russian fertilizer availability in the market has been reduced. We know why that is. But they're not the only countries, but they're some of the larger providers. And Russia and Belarus are some of the world's largest suppliers of potash for fertilizer production. Nitrogen-based fertilizers are impacted by the energy sector because they often will create those from natural gas. And then phosphate fertilizers are traditionally made in China. Now, fertilizer impacts can get bad if you have a single sector that's been hit, like, let's say, potash. The world is facing the three main types of fertilizers running short at the same time. That's unprecedented. Now, the United States has options from our own domestic supplies we can tap into if we need to. We can also get it from Canada. But for the rest of the world, it could get ugly. And the other thing to keep in mind is in many parts of the world, crop outputs are not a product of techniques. Like they've got a really creative way they grow certain, certain foods or what have you. That's not really it. It's just which fertilizers are they using? So limitations caused by a lack of fertilizer can have biblical consequences for certain countries. And in the case of Africa, it can get really bad. Um, the shipment topic about the fertilizers couple of things about that. I just reported firsthand data about the rail activity in the United States. And Mike Moore over at True Pundit uh, has also recently traveled across the United States. He, he drove out for Philly. You know, he hit the Northwest, went down through California, and then came back to, to Philly. So between the two of us, we've both traveled across the United States and had a chance to see what's 
what's going on, both on the roads, as far as how many vehicles are out there, how many trucks are out there, what are they carrying, um, how heavy was the rail traffic, et cetera. Also, I did post on Discord last week um, that uh, I mentioned to all of you that the trains were almost back-to-back, that you know a train engineer could literally see the train in front of them. And some of the trains were so long, you know, we had three or four locomotives on the front and two or three in the back pushing. I, I mentioned this on Discord last week, but I'll raise it to all of you in the audience. I did pick up the phone and call some folks I know in the supply chain world, and, and their response was pretty uniform, that they said, well, I'll tell you what that is. Um, their comment was, is, is that that is all of the backlog on the West Coast, which there's still a backlog, but that's all the backlog on the West Coast working its way through the system. And so that's that's contributing to to what you're seeing. Now, the thing though is is that with the fertilizer shipments on trains, the problem is not due to to a backlog in rail shipping. We've got congestion, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a specific item is being denied the right to be transported on trains. This is like telling Detroit, you all can't ship cars for a while until we tell you. So that, to me, raises the question to the U.S. government, given all of America's challenges right now, who in the name of God gave that order? Because somebody somewhere had to give that order. My first reaction was, you know, this was some plan by BlackRock or the World Economic Forum or whomever. And it may, in fact, be that. But I had to take a step back, spoke to some people and so on. There's a couple of questions we've got to ask ourselves. First, how much fertilizer is not being transported? That's a valid question. Then the next question is, is it some or all of it? Or is fertilizer only being delivered to certain U.S. states? Then an even bigger one. Is fertilizer being denied shipment as there's an awareness of how dire the supplies are globally? Or put another way, has some powerful group of people decided it will only be shipped for those agricultural products where we're most going to need it? And then last, but certainly not least, the market is the market. There are countries out there who can produce potash and other fertilizer types. One of them is Germany. It's just expensive for them to do it. And they have infrastructures already in place, but they usually use those supplies for domestic use. But the market being the market, if prices start really going up, that allows other folks to enter the market and add to the supply. Does that fix the problem? I doubt it. It will ease the problem. But that's one of those things that has to be monitored. The same is true about, about stories we've heard about food shortages. There will be shortages for sure, and the media is littered with it. The question is, what degree are alternatives or substitutes available? Not to get into the Marie Antoinette, we'll let them eat cake comment, but you may not have your favorite brand of cereal, but is there another brand of cereal you can buy? You may not have your favorite brand of bread, but is there another type of bread you can, you can buy? And then the one that's popped up just this week, we just had recent news, and I saw some of you chatting in the comments there, about food production facilities. And this is a separate but related topic. Just this week, we had two major health food suppliers within four miles of one another have their plants burned to the ground or at least suffer severe damage. And then just yesterday in Georgia, we had a plane crash into a General Mills facility. So we'll have to continue to monitor this topic as we go forward, because as I've also mentioned to all of you on prior shows, this is when we start getting into also computer hacking. Uh, you all may recall that um, I'd mentioned before that that you know, I think it was last year, uh, last winter, we we had uh, um, 
we had a major refrigerated uh, meat storage company about a year and a half ago, a year ago, where their software went down and the meat all went bad. Um, and so um, those types of things could, could occur again, just have to see. So this moves into the multipolar versus unipolar worlds and kind of the, the heart of this. Matt Eric this week spoke about the multipolar world favored not just by Russia, but also China and India. And those countries want a different financial and economic model than what the globalists are pushing with the Great Reset and the digital non-asset economy. So what are the examples of those polar worlds? Well, the bipolar world can be explained by the Cold War. You had the Soviet Union and the United States, two major powers influencing most of world events. Then we had the unipolar world. That was the United States post-1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Then we have those out there who are arguing there is or should be a multipolar world. Now, the reference to poles or polar, traditionally what that means is a country has the means to dictate the economic and political order in a particular way in the world. The unipolar environment is basically one single power is dictating the way things are going to be across the entire planet, whether political or economic. All global arguing right now regarding the economic environment is focused on the replacement for Bretton Woods, the economic system we had in place since World War II. We have to remember that after World War II, a bipolar world came into being between the West, quote-unquote, the free market, and the Soviet Union. And the Bretton Woods system was put in place essentially by American policymakers with cooperation from Britain. For people operating in the international environment and historians, Bipolar, unipolar, and multipolar worlds, again, are always a function of political states or countries. Now, occasionally, there's some ideology thrown in for good measure. Now, it's also worth noting, we have had a multipolar world, quote-unquote, recently, within about two generations, which was prior to the outbreak of World War I. We had a variety of powerful players or countries influencing global events, mostly in Western Europe. Now, if you had attended the kind of foreign policy conferences I used to attend in my old life, you would hear academics and analysts speak of their fear of any kind of multipolar world and it needing to be avoided at all costs. And their reasoning was basically boiled down to risk. Loosely, they said they believe there are too many players, global war can break out, a lot of conflict can break out. It's just bad for everybody. Researchers in the type 2 category are currently of the belief a multipolar world right now is impossible anyway. Uh, an example, again, is Peter, Peter Zeehan. Uh, he's one of several policy commentators who believe no matter how function, dysfunctional the United States is, politically or economically, all countries in the world are too heavily dependent upon the U.S. sustaining trade routes, the financial system, and other trade regimes within the global system. I would tell you that George Friedman probably, for the most part, agrees with that. Now, the subtle difference for us in 2022 from a type three kind of analysis is the following. It's no longer about countries or ideologies determining the economic system, but outside parties, the people that we often talk about here on Rogue. And it's not just us. There are others out there who do that. This would be the World Economic Forum, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Group, the Bilderberger Group, the London Corporation certain think tanks, both ones you've heard of and ones you haven't, private equity players like BlackRock and Vanguard, various United Nations bodies, and the list goes on. The unique aspect of what we're living through right now is twofold. The first is 
The proposed, dare I say mandated, economic system to replace Bretton Woods has not been architected by a major country. It's been developed and is being implemented by essentially non-governmental organizations or NGOs. Second, for that economic system to achieve its aims, the new economic system must sustain a unipolar world. Let me say that a bit differently. Rather than a multipolar or bipolar or unipolar world coming into being because Britain or the United States or Switzerland wants it, it's coming into being through groups who are beholden to no country or government. Groups who, for the most part, are led by and whose membership is made of individuals of very vast wealth and influence and individuals who have absolutely no connection to most of the world's population and, importantly, no empathy with them. So to wrap up on this topic, there are several reasons why countries like Russia, China, or India, among others, do not want to take part in this system. First, they have a more defined national identity than Western powers, for whom, you know, as the years have gone by and after two world wars, nationalism or or identifying with one's nation in, in Western Europe is not as much of a consideration as it used to be historically. And with the end of the Cold War, in my opinion, it's dropped a few notches in the case of the United States as well. You could also make the argument their resistance is due to a loss of sovereign power in such a system. Given their various national histories, they don't want to be taken advantage of by Western powers. This is something that all three of those countries have experienced and suffered under historically. And then lastly, many of those countries' economies are heavily reliant on physical goods and physical assets produced by their economies. You've heard V often talk about the difference between banking and insurance, who doesn't really produce an asset per se, versus hard asset manufacturing kinds of, of outputs that the United States used to produce. Now, Russia is the most obvious example of those countries because Russia is well known for their, their oil uh, stockpiles that they've got, natural gas, timber, gold, diamonds, and coal, among others. In the case of China and India, their national outputs are often a function of their large populations, who are a commodity depending on how you define economics. I would also point out China and India culturally have always had a strong sensitivity about the value of physical assets, given the fact that the both of them have gone through generations of chaotic history in their past. So if the new economic order or the Great Reset or the digital economy was something purely dreamed up by global technocrats as the most scientific answer to the current economic order's evolution, that would be one thing. But the other added element that's a problem here is there is an ideology behind their efforts who makes this whole thing even worse. And that ideology is that of a technocratic elite and their fixation on a new form of feudalism, inclusive of their transhumanist beliefs, which transhumanism is nothing more than eugenics. Therefore, they cannot be allowed to succeed with this model as currently envisioned. Any economic system these elites desire must always and logically have at its center the elimination of the value of a human being to nothing more than livestock to be dealt with accordingly. Now, my following statement on this, this piece of what I'm covering this morning may sound a bit odd, but given the current global situation, many events are impacting us all at once. Yet globalism is actually breaking down. We've spoken about it on Rogue, about how the United States is becoming balkanized. There's great truth to that. Yet, just as the United States is less united than we've been since possibly the Civil War, the rest of the world is experiencing this as well. This doesn't mean the world's elites, uh, at least for those of us on Rogue, 
we often refer to them as the globalists, are losing power. They're still seeking their goals. Have no illusion about that. At present, it appears, though, that a fractured world is serving their purposes more effectively than the peak globalist one we knew in the 1990s. They no longer want to leverage existing global institutions or trade blocks like NAFTA, the European Union, the Mercosur bloc in South America, and there's many others. The attention appears to be on the digital economy to be implemented through the Great Reset. So with that, I'll open the floor to CJ and V before I move into the kind of more traditional stuff I tend to tend to cover. You know, um, on a side note, uh, this week we've seen Netflix take a beating, right? You've seen them lose 200 million subscribers, their stock plummeting, uh, you know, 40 billion market cap wiped out. We all witnessed that. Velas, guess who owns close to 30 million shares of Netflix stock? I'm going to go out on a limb and ask, is it our friend in Saudi Arabia or somebody else? It's somebody else. That would be? BlackRock. Ah. Remember what I said. Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Watch everything that they hold is going to get attacked. Twitter, Netflix, what? Just keep 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 a tally of this. This is all playing into what you're saying in terms of with the with the globalists, the technocrats. Now their whole thing is to sell you on the digital economy, on central bank issued digital currencies. All of this, doing it, forecasting it, using advanced computer models, this, that, and the other, all in a vacuum going to be pretty interesting to see how these morons will try to sell us. And the majority of idiot people in the West will go for it. Right? But globally, it's not going to go nowhere. Locally within the Western Hemisphere, what is going to occur is that it, it, it we're going to get more tyrannical. We're going to lose more freedoms. We're going to turn into a digital uh, neo-feudalistic nightmare, for lack of a better word. But you're right, man. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are happening right now, especially with the globalists. Now they're realizing that they don't have the muscle. They don't have the muscle. Like, look, look at what happened to uh, the, 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 the spat between Germany and, and, and uh, the UK. Right. right. The spat was like, what? Well, you're not sending enough weapons to, to Ukraine. And the Brits are like, we, we can't manufacture <laughs> right weapons to send anywhere well and if if uh you know i'm oversimplifying if you're looking at detroit or or the Ruhr valley producing cars that's one thing because it's it's an ongoing market that needs more of those products this isn't world war ii we're not burning up military equipment so it's just sitting in storage it's periodically being used on military maneuvers by the way folks that's another reason why you have military maneuvers it's not just to make sure the troops know how the equipment works and to test out certain battle plans. It's to start up the engines and run those things around for a while. Uh, I mean, when you don't, I hate to go there, but you know, because of the life I had working with research and development for the department of defense, if, if we don't run simulations frequently enough and we don't, uh, you get things like us military aircraft falling into suburbs because nobody, nobody's really been flying them around that much. So to V's point, it's like my, my often repeated thing about what happened in Libya. We had the Italians 
and the Germans and the Brits aircraft all breaking down and they ran out of ordnance. I think Britain ran out of ordnance within a week and a half. They, they used everything. So the United States had to roll in and we repainted some of our planes and made them look like they were Italian just to keep up the image. But yeah, your thing about Netflix, I'd been really rubbing my chin about that because I thought a couple things. The first was, it's my age old thing about what changed. It's not like there was some big announcement that they'd lost subscribers due to or that. And I know many of us and even the folks in the audience might be kind of war- warmer to the idea of, well, content hey, like yeah. real quick not to interrupt you. But um, there, there was something that occurred at Netflix did block. Uh, Russian uh, services um, to to Russia, therefore you can't access Netflix. So there was, I think, I think it was like eighty seven thousand subscribers that they lost uh, because of that. So there was something pretty okay. significant with Netflix. Yeah, good one. Well, and and I'd I'd been pondering, you know, was this a reaction to pro, uh, programming like Cuties or whatever? But I started also thinking about what happened with Musk and and with Twitter, and we've talked about this on the show that that. When you've got enough of a footprint, I even posted this on the Discord page the other day, just kind of as a as a uh, loaded question. When you've got enough of a footprint of ownership in a particular firm, if you start moving stock around, you can literally at will make money. I mean, that's what the SEC, when they still had balls, is supposed to be doing, is, is to step in and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You have a disproportionate control of the stock of that firm, which you have the legal right to do, but you're manipulating the market. We're, we're now witnessing the market being manipulated before our eyes, and, and we're, it's like the magician is right in front of us, and we're not paying attention to what's in the left hand. So, yeah, when I saw the thing with Netflix, and to your point, V, about, about BlackRock, there are, some, there are some things taking place, and thank you, CJ, for, for pointing that out about the Russian subscribers. But it, it's, it's almost like the old joke about, which, which goes to, to uh, the CIA's Operation Monarch, what happens if you just get on CNBC or, or Bloomberg News and just tell people General Motors stock is tanking? I mean, you can see the ticker on the bottom of the screen, but if the media just keeps saying it's tanking, it's tanking, how many, usually Americans, have, have the wherewithal or even the ownership to just say, well, geez, I need to double check that and go look into it? It's like, no, you, you heard something and now you're making emotional decisions based, based on what you just heard. But yeah, the 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 takeaway on the the polar, you know, uh, the different polar environments and so on that that Matthew Arrett was talking about uh, was was in large part what I was trying to convey this morning is is these decisions are no longer being made by who they traditionally used to be. Even going back to the time of Rome, Pax Romana, uh, the the French piece, Pax Americana, um, there were always other powers, but there was kind of a, a balance. And now none of this is coming out of elected officials. None of this is coming out of elected governments. This is coming out of unelected billionaires who've decided that we really had a great idea and we'd like to go with an all digital economy. So if, unless you guys have some, some other thoughts, I was going to break into the, the kind of the normal, the normal show. No, just real quick on your, your fertilizer comment. I think you're, you're spot on in terms of questioning, okay, who's giving that specific directive not to allow those shipments uh, coming across rail. And, and I think you're right in terms of maybe what they're doing is either preventing some very large conglomerate of purchasing or, or attempting to purchase uh, all of the fertilizer and then, and then either hoarding or, or ramping up the you know, price gouging 
uh, or or the government determining where that fertilizer is specifically going to go. There, it, there's it, too much of coincidence between uh, the what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and then the directive that's going out. I've reached out to a couple of big farmers here in the Midwest, and I've had yet to hear back in terms of, you know, did they have their uh, their fertilizer orders uh, shipped or, or are they waiting on them? So I'll, I'll send a text to you guys once once I hear back from them. Thank you. And yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, I let me let me use the following phrase, uh, a bank run. Uh, you're absolutely right, CJ. You know, what, was there a revelation or an internalization among among people with the kind of power to do it that we may be facing the equivalent of a bank run on on fertilizer? So we've got to we've got to lock it down. Now, and again, not not to beat this topic to death, but it's important. You know, I think I covered on another show, one of the reasons why the United States has, has heavily used chemical fertilizers, which is somewhat tragic in my opinion. When World War II ended, we had a ton of nitrogen left around. Um, I'm using some hyperbole there, but because we needed nitrogen for the manufacturing of explosives. And when the war was over, it's like, well, we've got a lot of unstable nitrogen. <laughs> what are we going to do with it? And so they they moved away from natural manure fertilizers or other types of fertilizers along those lines to nitrogen-based fertilizers. And of course, the crop yields went through the ceiling, but then we discovered what? More of it is being produced, but its nutritional content is much, much less. And I know, V, I'm stepping into your universe when I say that. So then that was what prompted such a heavy use of antibiotics and hormones in our meat producing animals and livestock, which then added to a whole other problem that we've been trying to deal with. And it's, it's, it's a classic example of unfortunately what happens when things get set in motion and we're 50, a hundred years down the road. And it's like, God, that was a bad idea. Um, so in conclusion, you know, this is also why, um, Farmers markets or naturally grown foods here in the United States tend to use natural fertilizers. Now, of course, the problem is, is if you're killing livestock, um, that begs the question, you know, where are you going to get more of more of that manure from or, or other sources like that? I think there'll be some creativity out there uh, in the United States, at least, as far as the, the fertilizer topic is concerned. But I, I agree with people like Zihan. Uh, and I disagree with people like Zihan on a number of things, but I agree with Zihan and a couple other folks who've been saying the the real the real oh my god moment is Africa, and you know being in my fifties, the last thing I want to see is a return to Ethiopia of the nineteen eighties. I I don't want to witness that ever again. So we'll just have to we'll just have to sit back and wait. Um, v, any any thoughts on your part before we move on? Yeah, I think uh, recently the the latest advancements that have been done in the last 10 years, especially with Chinese and Russian investment within Africa itself, not only in the infrastructure sense of, of civic and civil work, but also in the agricultural technology space has been pretty huge. Uh, the, you're going to see in the next few years a advancement in the greening of deserts that are, will be taking place in Africa that because of Chinese investment, Chinese technology, you're going to see a great deal of uh, grain, uh, you know, imports. I mean, you, you, the, the Africans are going to pick up much of the market slack that the Europeans have shot themselves in the foot with, especially because Europe was a big agricultural importer of many Russian agricultural goods. Um, uh, 
Africa will be taking up the spade. So there, there is a time of crisis, without a doubt, but there is going to be some silver linings. But some countries are not going to fare well, just like you said, Velas. Uh, some countries will not be faring uh, uh, as well as others in Africa, for sure. Um, yeah, and you, you, uh, you raise an interesting point there. That's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, that it could, the, you know, the crisis could turn into the opportunity that Africa yeah. could become, uh, could, could become a new food belt as long as they can, they can get through the transition. Uh, not your Huckleberry. Thank you for the compliment. That was hilarious. Um, so with that, I'm going to move into, um, kind of the more traditional sort of, sort of show I do. Um, so uh, happy Orthodox Easter this weekend to those of you in the Orthodox community and well wishes to the Muslim community and the continued Ramadan observances. Um, going to cover the memory hole. haven't done the memory hole in a while. And I want to cover the Brazil-Argentina topic that got cut off last week due to the copyright issue on the song we played, or I played. Um, some Babylon B corporate logos that left me on the floor laughing and a Noam Chomsky view on U.S. presidents. And then the uh, Song of Resistance, pretty much, folks, at this point, <laughs> the Song of Resistance from, from this point forward is just always going to be posted to Discord. Um, we can't play these on the on, – I can't play Miami Vice, and I can't play no. <laughs> songs. We keep getting hit with copyrights, and then, like, they, they chop not just the, the song, but then they chop uh, the content that we're having on the show. So, anyway, um, this week's song is Young Men Dead by the Black Angels. Uh, my thanks to Frank for quite frankly, he Frank played that uh, at the opening of one of his shows months ago. And I'm like, God, who is this band? Um, they're really, really good. And and the song is not what you think it is based on, based on that title. Now, um, after the opening part of our show here that started at 11, because we're going until roughly one, uh, we need a little bit of mental sorbet. So with that, uh, V and CJ, if one of you could play the, um, uh, the ad, Jeremy's razors. This is uh, the enemy cannot stand ridicule and humor, folks. And this is this is a good one. Yes, I have this. Where the heck was? Give me one second, fellas. Oh yeah, Jeremy's razors. Here we go. Uh, 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 where are we? Give me one second. Okay. Um. Too many tabs open. I have to go find it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here it is. Uh, Case note, a McLaren 575 does not sound like that. That They actually overlaid a Ferrari sound uh, to the McLaren. I just want to let you know that. McLarens do not sound that good. Trust me. You remember when there were two genders and only one and a half of them had to shave their mustaches? (laughs) Oh, hi. I'm Jeremy Boring, CEO and God King of The Daily Wire. Harry's razors used to advertise on our shows. They're a great product, and we were happy to do it. That's before some peon who works for me went and said that boys are boys and girls are girls. And that was just too much for Harry's. They condemned our views. Views held by millions of Americans and 
virtually every human who's walked the planet until about 15 minutes ago as inexcusable. And they dropped their ads from our network because of what they called values misalignment. You're damn right our values are misaligned. And it's not just Harry's either. Gillette razors used to be the best a man could get. Then they decided that men are too toxic. Unless you're the kind of man who teaches his daughter to shave her beard. <laughs> if that makes sense to you, keep buying Gillette. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've had enough of the woke bullshit, and you're tired of paying companies like Harry's and Gillette to hate you, <laughs> then buy my new razor instead. Behold, Jeremy's razors. Yes, they're real. Yes, they're fabulous. But Jeremy, you say, you're a spelt silver fox with a salt and pepper beard that's the envy of lesser men. You're damn right I am. And I want to be clear that shaving with a Jeremy's razor won't actually make you look more like yes, me. Yes, you're giving me fierce. You're giving me power. Could make you look more like this guy, though. <laughs> and that's the most homoerotic moment you'll ever get from a Jeremy's Razor commercial. <laughs> what kind of man shaves with a Jeremy's Razor? I don't know. How about cowboys? Firefighters? Those guys that shot Osama Bin Laden? I mean, no, none of those guys have ever even heard of a Jeremy's Razor, but, but imagine how much more manly they'd be if they had. Right now, you're probably wondering if this whole thing is a joke. Sure it is. That doesn't mean it isn't real, or that it won't be the best shave of your life. Harry's Razors doesn't want your business. I do. They seem to hate you, and I, well, I can't say that I love you, but I don't mean you any specific harm. <laughs> specific harm. Our country's in trouble. Conservatives are being canceled by Hollywood, the media, universities, and now Harry's Razors. Stop giving your money to woke corporations who don't think you deserve their product. Give it to me instead. <laughs> Head over to I hate. That's 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 all. Yeah, uh, and it's a lot of subtlety there, folks. Uh, it's not a Kubrick film, but there's a little bit of that in there. Um, you know, his it's it's very Gus Gus's point about we got to stop spending money with people who hate yeah, us. Absolutely. And, and, and I am I am not a silver-haired fox, but I have a little silver on the sides. Um, so the the weekly memory hole uh, covered this previously. Where's the nuclear football? As it doesn't appear anywhere near Joe Biden. Uh, uh, nuclear football. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do see somebody holding a large briefcase behind them, is is their arm weighted down, or does it appear rather light? It's a catheter. Uh, That's what it's yeah. Like. Oh my God. Um, then we have Gary Webb. Uh, Gary was the San Jose Mercury news reporter who exposed yep. the connection between U.S. intelligence, drug trafficking in the United States, and off Hero. the books intelligence activity. There was a movie about him called Kill the Messenger. Amazing movie, Jeremy Renner. Yes, very good. And when, uh, when Gary committed suicide, right up V's favorite topic, he shot himself twice in the head with a thirty-eight because the first bullet just wasn't doing it for him. Yeah, that's how you do it. Poof. Ow! Oh, that didn't right. work. 
<laughs> 15 times with a nail gun. Um, why are so many documents still classified from World War I, especially diplomatic and banking communications amongst Imperial Russia, France, Britain, Imperial Germany, and the United States to this day? Uh, let us not forget about the Barrington Resolution. It was when the medical professionals globally questioned COVID approaches and the vaccines. Uh, they paid a terrible price for telling the truth and shouldn't be forgotten. I also wonder if we'll ever find out what happened to Ray Grycar. Uh, who's that, you ask? He was the local prosecutor in Pennsylvania who wanted to file charges against Jerry Sandusky at the University of Pennsylvania as far back Whoa. as 1998. As many of you know, I've got a, I've got a real soft spot in my heart for anyone and anything dealing with, with uh, pedophile trafficking because it's one of those topics that most folks just can't deal with. Um, eventually, Ray dropped his investigation, and he disappeared a few years ago after leaving his house to do some errands. Uh, they found his car, and inside his car was a cell phone but no wallet or keys. Uh, then a while later, his laptop turned up in a river but with missing the hard drive. Uh, then a little while later, they found the hard drive, found it on a riverbank, but it was too damaged to find any data. Uh, he's never been heard from since, nor has his body turned up. Given the fact Bill Barr's in the news again promoting his book, I'd like to remind us all it was his dad who hired Jeff Epstein for his first major job at that private girls' school in Manhattan. Um, what was one of the bigger areas in U.S. history where Bill Barr showed up? Uh, cleaning up Iran-Contra. Uh, who paid for Oliver North's lawyers? Uh, the Clintons. Uh, who was Bill Clinton's handler in the CIA when drugs were coming in from Arkansas and guns going down into South America? It was Oliver North using the code name John Cathy. Um, we still have no idea what's going on with Julian Assange, although it does appear as though the extradition process is moving forward. And per Patrick Ryan, uh, the UK just coughed up a major co poker chip, which begs the question, what are they going to get for it, if anything? Uh, we have a lot of people who died in New York nursing homes, along with other U.S. states, due to flat-out criminal behavior by putting sick people in tight, confined spaces. Of course, we'd heard that that was policy with the National Health Service in the United Kingdom where they dry-ran policies like that in Western Scotland and Australia uh, on the elderly, including denying them hydration when they're ill. We do not know what happened to Philip Haney, the DHS whistleblower. If you'll recall, he had a second book that was coming out where he was going to name names, unlike his first book, who just gave the narrative about what was going on with the U.S. government and us looking the other way on certain kinds of terrorists operating on U.S. soil. And my usual favorites, we have no answers on Nashville's thermobaric explosion, in December of 2020, nor the French OVH cloud hosting firm who lost their data center, one of their four data centers to a fire in March 2021. We have the reporter Michael Hastings, who died in L.A. back in 2013. He's the guy whose car exploded before he'd even hit anything. Oh, well, you know, that, 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 that's what happens sometimes, fellas. You just drive your car and it explodes and the engine block goes 100 yards uh, away from where your car is. Totally normal. Totally normal. Happened to me last week. Um this is, this is a guy who was digging into the WikiLeaks drops about government research into uh, quite a bit of crazy stuff. And then what is the true backstory on the U.S. government's use of the Promise software and the death of Danny Casolaro, among others? Uh, furthermore, what role did that have in the death of Gary DeVore, who's cryptically known as the writer with no hands? Some of you out there, because I'm mentioning Gary DeVore, might think I'm going to make a comment about Claudia Christian from Babylon 5, but I'm not going to do that. Um, the solar system. Uh, Saturday, April 23rd, we have Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in a row along the horizon. Uh, at the end of the month, you can add the moon 
And then around May 24th, Mercury should also take its position as well. I'm simply noting this because we know some of the folks in the globals community like to execute their plans around significant astronomical uh, events. Epstein books. Uh, you all may recall a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I have two books on order who focus on Jeff Epstein and more of the backstory and about him and involvement with foreign governments and intelligence services and arms dealing and all of that. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the books have been delayed. They were both supposed to be uh, available like January, February of this year. And then I kept getting notifications saying, well, they're delayed, et cetera. Well, guess what? I just received a not another notification this week. Uh, it's now delayed until the fall. Uh, both of them. I, I keep totally getting normal. a totally normal. I keep totally getting, <laughs> I keep getting a sneaking suspicion. Those books aren't going to see the light of day until after the midterms, if at all. Um, Speaking of books, two things. Uh, first, please go to the Vellus uh, channel on, on uh, Discord and check out the post from last night, Thursday night, from James Perloff, who wrote the book Shadows of Power, the Council on Foreign Relations and the American Decline, published in 2017. Uh, he has several takeaways in that article who are fascinating, the one I posted on Discord last night. Now, just being transparent, he is associated with the John Birch Society, and I don't have a problem with that uh, at face value. I'm just saying be, be aware because they approach the world from a certain view, speaking of the first half of today's program. Second, uh, once again, right in front of our faces, and we kind of missed it. Um, you know, COVID wasn't declared a pandemic until March of 2020. And Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, was available in July of 2020. So how did Klaus Schwab get a book with his inputs on COVID-19 reviewed and published that fast? Inquiring minds want to know. He was a, he, Klaus Schwab is one of the most brilliant prophetic minds of our time, and I'm ready to reset my life for Klaus. I'm ready to own nothing and be. CJ, are you ready to own nothing and be happy? We've lost CJ. He he wants to own nothing. <laughs> <laughs> CJ's gone. I don't think he's there anymore. <laughs> So uh, Klaus, yeah, Klaus uh, uh, channeled his inner Nostradamus, but yeah, that's uh, and I, you know, when I when I uh, <laughs> he wrote very fast, uh, Gilbert. Um, yeah, when I came across that, I'm like, well, wait a minute, what? And it's like, yeah, oh my god, that's right. Yeah, he published a book about about his takeaways about COVID nineteen when it had just happened. Um, so about last week's show, the Brazil-Argentina thing, this was, this was the content that was cut. Now, any of you who listened to the program, you, you, heard, um, you heard that. Um, let, me, let me recover that for those of you that may have missed it or, or listened to our programs on, on uh, replay. Um, I had a couple of people reach out to me and say, hey, could you cover that again? So, so here I am. Um, while I was covering the topic about assassination, I referenced a graduate school paper I wrote around the nuclear weapons programs of Brazil and Argentina during the 70s and the 80s. Um, both countries' programs were, as you can imagine, expensive, and they tried to leverage native assets to shorten both development and required investment. Brazil leveraged their hydroelectric power resources uh, that they were extensively building at the time due to IMF and World Bank loans they received. Um, please see the book, Tales of an Economic Hitman. Um, in Argentina's case, they poured a lot of money into their information technology industry for the significant requirements that you, you have when you model and design nuclear weapons. Um, for Argentina, this also meant leveraging their relationship with IBM. 
Now, it was covered in part on a 60 Minutes program. A couple other news services dug into it. That there was a reported financial scandal with IBM executives in Argentina during the 1980s. Several of the people connected to the scandal were murdered, uh, including a couple of folks hanging from soccer stadium goals. I'm sure there were also a couple accidents that just got listed as accidents. There were rumors the financial scandal, who could be more than likely, given the fact it was South America, was in fact a cover story. The possible truth being this was a move to kill people connected to Argentina's nuclear development. What is equally interesting about that is there were rumors that it wasn't Brazil who took out the IBM person, personnel, but shall we say others who wanted to discourage further weapons development. You can read into that whatever you want. Eventually, both Argentina and Brazil abandoned those programs. At least that's the official story. The same way South Africa did, because South Africa's stated reason was the cost of sustaining their nuclear weapons was just so expensive, it no longer made sense for them. Obviously, for me, one of the more interesting elements was whether the elimination of the IBM personnel was also a warning to everybody to stop their work. Now, given events in Iran's nuclear development many decades later, it would appear the tactic of using assassination is nothing new to stop people from developing nuclear weapons. But I would also point out that in my research, I found that Argentina's nuclear development was not performed in a silo. There was considerable cooperation with several other countries, and this included Israel, South Africa, and I'm dead serious, North Korea. Politics and national ambition do lead to strange alliances. There is an article that just came out last night uh, from oilprice.com that uh, U.S. refiners are starting to shift over to increase more diesel and jet fuel this summer. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. We've talked about on the show that back in 2007 or so, right before the 08 collapse, uh, gasoline prices at the pump were getting pretty high in the United States, and consumers were screaming bloody murder about those costs. And so the government did what it normally did. It acted like it did something and instead told the oil industry to fix it. What the oil industry did was is they shifted production away from diesel and jet fuel over to gasoline to calm down the voters. And that, unfortunately, is because voters are too fixated on the price they're paying for their vehicles and not thinking about the cost of shipping products to them, which often use vehicles or transportation methods that use diesel fuel. So I posted that on Discord last night, and I found it interesting that, that you know, it's not the sort of story you're going to find even on, I don't think, CNBC. I didn't see it out there. It may be. But that you have to go to a, an industry website to find out that, that the refiners now want to start uh, producing more, more diesel fuel. So we'll see where that leads us. Um, Mike Moore had another of his kind of, hey, that's a good point sort of comments this week. Uh, that being, he said, in a, true tra- in a true traditional disease outbreak, a real pandemic, You do not normally need to, quote-unquote, sell the public of a country on the need to follow certain public health measures. Correct. You'll you'll recall what I said last week about he's got all this data uh, in his hands from from DHS, where in 2013 and 2014, they were prepping state and related officials on what to do in a pandemic. So he raised an interesting point. Why in any kind of a pandemic would you need such a massive public relations planning effort around a, quote-unquote, potential event? Let me offer a Vellus sort of way of interpreting that. If pre-planning is so damn important to the government, I'm pretty darn sure we need that level of preparation and investment when it comes to losing the east or west coast power grids due to a solar flare or similar. The danger to the integrity of the United States is the same, if not higher, and the danger has been discussed for years. In fact, I actually took 
some people I know to a meeting of the FBI InfraGuard meetings that I attend in my neck of the woods uh, to hear several speakers that work both for the FBI as well as other organizations about how at risk our power grids are, which again, as I've shared with all of you, that was one of my areas of subject matter expertise for the DOD lab for whom I used to work. So the danger to the United States for our power grid is immense. And even George Norrie over at Coast to Coast had two or three authors on who were former government advisors and, and, and uh, management consultants who advised the government, hey, you know, for about a five or six billion dollar investment, we could really harden much better, not fix it, but we could harden much better the nation's power grids. No one wanted to do it because you'd have to admit that you knew the problems there. And the longer we let a problem, it's like corporate America, the longer that problem goes on, the more no one can talk about it. Well, fellas, I mean, you know, when the power grid is eventually completely knocked out, it's going to be to the benefit because we'll be able to erect solar panels and windmills. So (laughs) it's awesome, man. Well, and one of Mike Moore's uh, guests just this, this morning, uh, kind of startled me a bit because they were, it's like, I wonder if they're listening to our show. Um, she was mentioning that, you know, one of the ways you can create a digital economy real fast is if you have some hacking that takes out U.S. banks and, and Western European banks or even Japan that you can blame on Russian hackers and say, well, the whole system's just cooked. <laughs> yeah. But you're lucky because uh, some folks over at the World Economic Forum, they've got this uh, idea. And uh, we thought it would be interesting to give this give this a try. Um, and on this to- topic about the pandemic relief, more uh, more also brought up, which you know we we have to consider it. He said this is a heck of an investment uh, in both a narrative and in planning for just a two year run. So he's like, you know, basically caveat emptor. Keep keep an eye open because they there may be two dot of this nonsense coming. We'll just have to see. The RAND think tank back in 2019 came up with various ways to weaken Russia's power uh, or more specifically create conditions who could overextend and unbalance Russia. I'm stunned that this report's even in the public domain. Um, These included areas focused on economic steps, geopolitical and ideological information approaches, uh, air and space cost measures, and the list goes on. Uh, As you look at the report, each group is broken down into a grid of the potential steps then off to the right categories of likelihood of success, uh, benefits, and then a cost risks are added to that matrix. Each item was then scored with the opportunity being low, moderate, or high. Now, I note this for several reasons. One is this is typical of the kind of work that RAND will perform. I don't mean putting Russia on the spot. I'm just saying that when it comes to high-end policy thinking, this is the kind of stuff that RAND will do. So if you've never seen the way RAND operates, this is this is a good report to take a look at. Um, many of the measures identified had a heavy focus. Now, remember, it was 2019 on using Ukraine to create friction, arming NATO allies with more gear. That sounds familiar because we were just talking about it earlier on the show. And further provocative steps on Russia's borders. Um, basically, all the things that Russia says NATO has been doing on their borders, and this was from a report issued in 2019, I posted the report on Discord on Saturday, April 9th, and again on uh, Monday, April 18th. So with that, I'm going to try. Come on, baby. Trying to open something. Yeah. 
Uh, bear with me. I'm going to try and present. <laughs> I hope I don't blow up the. We've tried this before and it doesn't always work. Uh, share screen. Okay. You Can you see my screen? Yes. Okay. This is the Babylon B Honest Company slogans. Um, so I scroll down. <laughs> Nike, slavery, just do it. Slavery, uh, just do it. Walmart, we clean the bathroom sometimes. Clean the bathroom. Oh, God, yeah, ain't that the truth? Uh, United yeah. Airlines, we said the skies are friendly. We made no promise about what happens inside the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit Airlines, you're poor, aren't you? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the American Federation of Teachers, we care about ourselves. Uh, Twitter, which is funny, 9.2% uh, less evil. Um, <laughs> Facebook, please come back. Please come back. <laughs> Nintendo, what is an internet? Well, yeah. uh, Microsoft, <laughs> you awesome. hate us, but you have to use us anyway. Uh, oh, God, Coca-Cola, share a Coke with your endocrinologist because you now have diabetes. Uh, Taco Bell, we're cheaper than X-Lax. Uh, Amazon, shut up and buy it, you mindless consumer. And uh, BlackRock, this one killed me because this, if for those of you who are Tolkien fans, this this is the the uh, dark uh, elvish language of the One Ring, Ashnazdratulik. Um, <laughs> we, we are the dark ring of the Lord Sauron. Uh, Home Home Depot, if you need to ask for help, you don't deserve it. And Disney will convert your children. So, so that is brilliant. Honest, honest company logos. <laughs> come back, Facebook. That's the best one. <laughs> Facebook, come back. <laughs> Please. Please. Um, I've got a, a, uh, a movie that I'm going to explain to you what the storyline was. It's an absolutely horrible movie, folks. It's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Don't watch it. Uh, it had Lee Majors and Burgess Meredith. I'm pretty sure just doing it for a paycheck. It's it's how bad is this movie? It's so bad it's free on YouTube. Uh, it's a 1981 film, and it's called The Last Chase. Mm. And uh, I think even Fox, the Fox Network, when it first came out in the 1980s, could have done a better job. But the storyline of the movie is interesting. And the storyline was, and I quote: In the year 2011, the United States is a police state. A substantial percentage of the population was wiped out by a devastating viral pandemic 20 years earlier. Ah. Amidst the resulting chaos and general panic, democracy collapsed and a totalitarian cabal seized power. After moving the seat of government to Boston, the new dictatorship outlawed ownership and use of automobiles, boats, and aircraft on the pretext that an even bigger crisis, the exhaustion of fossil fuel supplies, was imminent. The loss of other personal freedoms followed, and surveillance cameras now monitor every private citizen's every move. It's another one of those examples of when I said sometimes the only way to tell the truth is through fiction, and I've often uh, sent out there um, on a couple of, of Discord pages various movies and things and, and some hidden elements of that. But again, here we have a 1981 film, and of course... When the film came out, we were just coming off the second oil shock. 
Plus, you know, the early 80s, and by that I mean like 79, 80, 81, that was a rough damn time in the United States, especially for us here in the Midwest. We were losing steel plants left and right. The list goes on. So you can understand why a movie that came out at that time might imply that there's some sort of a fuel crisis. But the whole pandemic thing and everything else that went along with it is just funny on, on a number of levels. Kay Griggs, a couple of folks have been talking about this on the Discord channel. She did an interview back in 1998 or 1999, and it's, it's that interview has been making the rounds again. Uh, and my thanks to all of you on Discord who kind of brought this up again. It's, it's a long interview, folks. I mean, it's like six, seven hours. And it was done as uh, her attorney interviewing her as kind of a dead man switch because she was in a heavy divorce with her husband, who was a senior military officer. And for those of you who aren't familiar, if you have a high-level security clearance um, and or depending on the type of work you do, your divorce can't really go through divorce court. It kind of does, but it, it has to be handled by a federal judge because there is the possibility something may come out during the divorce proceedings about like, well, you were always out of the country and I never knew where the hell you were. And you came back with a bullet wound and told me you got shot in Detroit. Um, there's just stuff that can come out during, during divorces between couples where one or both of them have, have high level security clearances where you just can't run the risk that that's going to be in the public domain uh, on a, on a, cause you know, most divorce cases and stuff are all, all posted on various websites on court websites throughout the country. So it had been a long time. I forgot I saw this original interview when it came out. I think, you know, I was in grad school and probably up late one night and I found an obscure file stored on a, on a website somewhere and, and I was watching this interview with her. It's now on YouTube. And uh, like I said, it's very long. You'll, you'll need to watch it in, in pieces. Um, she was the ex-wife of a senior Marine officer and he was involved in a ton of stuff. And... It's, it's like I said, it's like a very long deposition, but she covers the culture of senior ranking military officers, what she heard them say, what she heard about their attitude, defense contractors, drug smuggling, chemical weapons. She covers it all. Now, you can tell she has kind of an evangelical Christian worldview, and that's perfectly fine. And, you know, she understandably believed that a lot of what she was encountering and a lot of these events were, were wholesale evil, which depending on your definition, religious or otherwise, um, yes, yes, Bosch guy, I know it should go through federal court. Um, but, um, it's, it's worth a view if you get, if you get the chance or if you can find a write up about what she was talking about, because again, it was it was 22 years ago or so or more when she did this interview, and a lot of what she talked about are things that have since kind of come to pass. There are rumors China is going to be sending top people, in fact, I think it's no longer a rumor, to speak to Saudi Arabia soon about paying for oil uh, in Yuan. Uh, this on the heels of an oil.com article that came out this week noting that Saudi Arabia's economic growth is expected to double this year to nearly 8%. And uh, given the news with China and Saudi wealth, it begs the question, I'm sorry, given this news about China and Saudi Arabia's wealth, it begs the question, what kind of additional influence internationally does this empower Saudi Arabia to achieve? And for that matter, how much more domestic stability does this allow them uh, to buy? So with that, um, V or CJ, if you can pull up the uh, Noam Chomsky interview, and while you're looking for that, 
Um, keep in mind, folks, a couple of things about Chomsky. I know people who've discovered Chomsky and like his work or don't like his work or think he's uh, batshit crazy. Um, he's one of those analysts that, you know, he was an MIT um, linguist. And he started doing work on the ways in which language, almost like computer code, can be used to manipulate people. And he's, he's produced a lot of very – I wouldn't – I know people say, well, he's anti-U.S. He's anti-deep state, uh, global control. He's yeah, anti-everything. Yeah. Leave it at that. And I, I know a lot of people will, will go with the, you know, kind of like the, the, um, the movie out there about, oh, oh, you saw Chomsky, you know, uh, great. Um, and a lot of people will, will oftentimes say, well, Chomsky said the following. And in the last couple of years, or really the last year or two, uh, in my opinion, Chomsky's either become unglued or has been pressured to make certain statements or the ravages of time have caught up with him. I don't know. Um, he's a true leftist. Honest to God, true, true leftist. And he's very inflexible on a lot of his theories, which is fine. They're his theories. You do you. Um, but there are things he's said that are worth considering. There are things he's said that are, like a better word, true. So this interview that we're about to do is um, Chomsky talking about various U.S. presidents and what happened under their administrations. And it is, it is worth uh, listening principles were applied every post world war II president would be uh, indictable it's probably true can we run uh, run down them real fast what did eisenhower do that you would indict him for well, eisenhower uh, overthrew the conservative nationalist government of iran with the military coup uh, he overthrew the first and last democratic government in guatemala by a military coup and invasion leading to years of uh, in Iran, it led to 25 years of brutal dictatorship, uh, finally overthrown in 79. In Guatemala, it led to massive atrocities, which are still continuing. That's after almost 50 years. Uh, in Indonesia, uh, this wasn't known until recently, but he conducted the uh, major clandestine terror operation of the post-war period up until Cuba and Nicaragua in an effort to break up uh, Indonesia, strip off the outer islands uh, where most of the resources are, uh, and uh, undermine the what was then considered as a threat of Indonesian democracy. Uh, Indonesia was too free and open. It was allowing a uh, political party of the poor to participate. They were gaining a lot of ground so that uh, uh, Eisenhower supported and helped instigate a, a military rebellion in the Outer Islands. Uh, this is just for starters. Now, these are all indictable offenses. What about Kennedy? Kennedy was one of the worst. Uh, Kennedy, first of all, invaded South Vietnam. Uh, during the Eisenhower administration, uh, they had blocked a political settlement in 1954 and instituted a kind of a Latin American-style terror state which had killed maybe 60 or 70,000 people by the end of the Eisenhower period and had instigated uh, uh, a response, a reaction. Uh, Kennedy recognized that it couldn't be controlled internally, so he simply invaded. Uh, in 1962, uh, about uh, a third of the bombing missions were carried out by the U.S. Air Force 
in uh, uh, South, U.S. planes with South Vietnamese insignia, but U.S. pilot. Uh, they author, he authorized napalm. Uh, he began the uh, use of uh, chemical weapons to uh, destroy food crops. Uh, uh, they began programs which uh, drove millions of people into what amounted to concentration camps. Now, that's aggression. Uh, in the case of Cuba, it was just a massive campaign of international terrorism, which almost led to the destruction of the world, led to the missile crisis. Uh, and uh, we can continue. Again, these are all uh, indictable offenses. What about Johnson? Well, Johnson expanded the war in Indochina to the point where ended up probably leaving three or four million people dead. Uh, he uh, invaded the Dominican Republic to block uh, what looked like a potential democratic revolution there, uh, supported uh, the Israeli uh, occupation in its early stages. Uh, again, we can go around the world. Uh, pick your, take, them, take, say, Carter. You know, I'll, I'll get there, but Nixon's okay. next. Uh, Nixon we don't even have to talk about. <laughs> we, can, we can skip that one, okay? But, uh, Ford, then Ford. Well, Ford was only there for a short a time, but long enough to uh, endorse the Indonesian invasion of East Timor, uh, which became about as close to genocide as anything in the modern period. Uh, they pretended to uh, oppose it but secretly supported, in fact, not so secretly. Uh, the, uh, the U.S., uh, dip, uh, for, uh, immediately after the invasion, the U.S. did join the rest of the world in formally condemning it at the Security Council. But uh, Ambassador Moynihan uh, was kind enough to explain to us, in his words, uh, that uh, his instructions were to render the United Nations utterly ineffective in any actions it might take to counter the Indonesian great, uh, invasion. And he says proudly that he did this with considerable success. Uh, his next sentence says, uh, in the next few months, it seems that about 60,000 people were killed. And then he goes off to the next topic. Uh, that's the first few months went on to probably hundreds of thousands. Uh, uh, formally, the US uh, announced a boycott of weapons but secretly, it increased the supply of weapons, including counterinsurgency. Oh, sorry. I don't know what I did. You said that if the Nuremberg... Uh, which became about as close to genocide as anything in the modern period, uh, they pretended to uh, oppose it, but secretly supported, in fact, not so secretly, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, dip, uh, for, uh, immediately after the invasion, the U.S. did join the rest of the world in formally condemning it at the Security Council. But uh, Ambassador Moynihan uh, was kind enough to explain to us, in his words, uh, that uh, his instructions were to render the United Nations utterly ineffective in any actions it might take to counter the Indonesian in great, uh, invasion. And he says proudly that he did this with considerable success. Uh, his next sentence says, uh, in the next few months, it seems that about 60,000 people were killed. And then he goes off to the next topic. Uh, that's the first few months went on to probably hundreds of thousands. Uh, uh, formally, the U.S. Uh, announced a boycott of weapons, but secretly it increased the supply of weapons, including counterinsurgency. 
equipment so that the Indonesians could consummate the invasion. That's just a short period in office, but that's indictable. Seriously, in fact, that's a major war crime. Carter? Carter uh, increased, as the Indonesian atrocities were increasing, they peaked in 1978, uh, Carter's flow of weapons to Indonesia increased uh, when Congress imposed the human rights restrictions. By then, there was a human rights movement in Congress uh, to block the flow of uh, uh, advanced weaponry to Indonesia. Uh, Carter uh, arranged through Mondale, vice president, uh, to get Israel to send U.S. Skyhawks to Indonesia uh, to enable Indonesia to complete what turned out to be near genocide, killing maybe a quarter of the population or something. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, Carter just won the Nobel Prize. Uh, his great achievement was the Camp David Agreements. Uh, the Camp David Agreements are presented as a uh, diplomatic triumph for the United States. In fact, they were a diplomatic catastrophe. Uh, at Camp David, uh, the United States and Israel accepted, finally, Egypt's 1971 offer, which they had then, the U.S. had rejected at the time, uh, except that now it was worse from the U.S.-Israeli point of view because it included the Palestinians. Uh, in order to accept, get Israel to accept Egypt's 1971 offer, after a major war and atrocities and so on, uh, Carter raised uh, aid, military and other aid to Israel to more than 50% of total aid worldwide. Israel used it at once in exactly the way they said they were going to do, as every sane person knew, uh, as an opportunity to attack their northern neighbor, first in 1978, then in 1982, and to increase uh, integration of the occupied territories. Uh, and that's for starters. We can continue. Reagan? I don't think we have to talk about that one either. I mean, Reagan is the first president to have been uh, uh, condemned by the International Court of Justice for what they called the unlawful use of force, meaning international terrorism, in the war against Nicaragua. Again, that's just for starters. Uh, they also, the Security Council, uh, endorsed it in two resolutions both of which were vetoed by the United States. Bush won. Well, uh, we can begin with the invasion of Panama. Uh, the invasion of Panama, which, according to the Panamanians, killed about 3,000 people, since it's never investigated. We don't know if that's true or not. Uh, this was done in order to uh, kidnap a uh, disobedient thug who had been supported by the United States right through his worst atrocities. Noriega. Noriega. He was brought to Florida and tried for crimes that he committed mostly on the CIA payroll. Okay, that's aggression. Uh, we could go into the details of the war in Iraq, uh, but uh, there were plainly opportunities for, they might not have worked, we don't know, but there were opportunities for diplomatic settlement, which the Bush administration refused to consider, and incidentally the press would not report, with a single exception, and Long Island Newsday, which did report the whole story throughout accurately, and is the only newspaper in the country to have done so. Uh, the uh, uh, Bush administration then did attack, and uh, the attack was uh, carried out in uh, 
in a manner which is criminal under the laws of war. Um, they attacked uh, uh, infrastructure. I mean, if you attack New York City and you destroy the electrical system, the power system, the sewage system, and so on, power grids. that amounts to biological warfare, and that's the nature of the attack. Uh, then came a sanctions regime, which uh, AV. mostly Clinton, but began with Bush, which is yes. quite conservative. You can, you can stop it at this point. So a couple, a couple of things about that. Um, the first is, bear with me here. Yes, we be the baddies, Balaj guy. Um, somebody was asking where to go. Oh, uh, Awaken Blondie. You're looking for the interview on YouTube with K K A Y Griggs G R I G G S, and you should be able to find it. So uh, the other thing, John Michael Karma, Jet Blue, Mike Tyson is our security. Yes, that's a great logo. <laughs> and uh, Revolutionary Bliss. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, animation. Look at what South Park has gotten away with. Look at mm. what uh, Family Guy has gotten away with, because yeah. it's you know, to to refined people we call it animation. To the average person, it's like yeah, that that nighttime cartoon. You're absolutely right about Monsters Inc. the The energy that is drawn from people's fears. I mean, that is that is not just a Judeo Christian view. That that is a view held by many people around the world on their various faiths. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Um. Now, on Chomsky's comments, I'm going to start backward and work my way forward. There is a guy, um, where the hell is he? Craig Roberts. Craig Roberts has, no, I'm terribly sorry. That's the Medusa file. Where's the other one here? Look, I'm looking in my, I'm looking on my bookshelf. Um, I can't find it. There's a, there's an, there's an, oh, no, there it is. There it is. Uh, John M. Newman. Newman is the guy who I've mentioned on prior shows. Newman wrote Newman for you Seinfeld fans. Newman is the guy who wrote a bunch of very tomish books about the Kennedy assassination. Mm. And, and he is the desk reference if, because if you need to get into the, the CIA's naming convention that they use for agents and operations, if you need to double check that this South American sounding person has 29 different damn aliases, depending on whose book you're reading. And in fact, it's just this one guy named, named Joe Smith. Um, one of the things I liked about Newman's books was if you look at, in spite of what Chomsky said, and I'm not making allowances here because there's a lot of good and bad with, with John F. Kennedy. But if you read Newman's books, as well as a couple of other people, and you look at what Kennedy inherited from Eisenhower, I mean, it is the worst first day on the job you've ever seen because it wasn't just Cuba. There was some serious crap going down in Indonesia. Uh, Vietnam was on fire. There was a bunch of other stuff going on in Laos. I mean, pretty much any pushpin you could stick in a country in Asia or Southeast Asia, Kennedy walked in the door to a host of crap that was on fire. And... The fact that he could get through it to the degree that he did, plus um, dealing with intelligence agencies that were either flat out lying to him, or if he called them out on their lies, their attitude was basically, you're not in charge. 
you you obviously didn't get the memo, but since World War II, this chair in the White House doesn't do shit. Um, which is why he went down that whole road with Dulles about I'm gonna smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. And I don't want to get too far with that, other than to say through Eisenhower into Kennedy's administration, there was still a degree to which U.S. foreign policy was, shall we say, heavily, uh, heavily influenced by the president beyond the State Department and other major players. Um, I was stunned recently by a moron in the House of Representatives on the news recently who was making a comment about um, – we we deter, you know, like we in Congress helped determine the foreign policy of the United States, and it's like no, you Jesus, you need to read the Constitution. You run the checkbook, and the Senate passes the laws. And neither of you really, I mean, yeah, you got to approve stuff, but that's the State Department, the, the White House. That's not that's not you guys. You've got delusions of grandeur again over there. Um, but post Kennedy, no U.S. president, in my opinion, really made any major foreign policy decisions. They may have implemented them. They may have been, shall we say, consulted. But in the final analysis, even even LBJ, who's got one of the biggest egos on the planet next to Dick Nixon. Nixon probably, especially his moves with China and similar in Nixon's administration, in spite of it being Dick Nixon and his ties to organized crime. Um, Nixon still made some decisions. But even LBJ was basically handed a piece of paper and told, this is what you're doing. And you can understand why Nixon was forced out for a number of reasons. And I know people, well, he was corrupt and he spied on the Democrats. Oh, dear God. No, no, no. Stop. They, they broke into the Watergate because they were looking for copies of the blackmail that the mafia had on, on Nixon. That's what that was about. But Nixon had to go. And, of course, who do we stick in after Nixon? Well, we get rid of his first vice president. And then we bring in Gerald Ford, who is what? One of the people that was on the, the Warren Commission, for God's sakes. And he's sitting there watching Michigan football for two years while he finishes out the presidency. But Jimmy Carter up through Reagan and others, those folks are not making those decisions. What Chomsky's talking about is true. Those events happened. Those crimes happened. What we did to Panama happened. The list goes on. But no U.S. president is sitting there with an atlas and a thesaurus working up U.S. foreign policy saying, okay, we're going to fund some of the worst human rights violations in Indonesia nobody's ever heard about. And by the way, just a personal comment, given my own research into a variety of human rights violations and, and all sorts of crap that's gone on uh, out there, I am stunned to this day that international terrorism that would make Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the PL look, look tame by comparison has not been coming out of Indonesia and the rest of the world. I am, I am stunned that Indonesians have not been lighting up for 40 years European capitals in the United States with violence, given, given the unbelievable earth-shattering crap that happened in Indonesia. And <laughs> one of the people who was involved in that was, drumroll, uh, George Bush Sr., because of Bush family interests and maintaining uh, oil and other petrochemical assets of theirs in, 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 in Indonesia and keeping these things under control. So as we wrap up my, my content for today, uh, we got a clip from the movie Margin Call. And uh, Paul Bettany, folks, is a great, great actor. Movie. Great movie. Great movie, great actor. And uh, just a life lesson, by the way, because you, some of you may be aware that there was a point in Paul Bettany's career 
when he was basically told you might be able to do animated voices or television commercials, but and it was it was his own uh, media person saying your your career's over, man. It's it's done. And then literally he got a phone call to get involved in the Avengers movie franchise, and and the rest is is history. So this clip is from Margin Call, and the reason why I'm using it as usual, there's a couple of reasons why. There's a break in the action in the movie, and the two younger characters go on the roof with with Bettany's character to kind of just talk about what's going on and similar. And there's some some drama there about the pressure and what they're dealing with in the world of finance. Now, not to be dramatic, I personally can relate to this scene. Because when you've seen what I've seen when it comes to mass layoffs, especially in 2001 in the IT sector, the human impact of corporate decisions like offshoring and free trade, um, the industries where I've seen massive transition, and then for that matter, the work I did in Washington advising federal agencies, where you've got fear, real, honest-to-God, shake-you-to-your-core fear in government officials about things falling apart. Um, for me, this scene really, really hits home. Uh, minus the hookers. I'll leave that to Gus. But I'm dead serious. Uh, I've been uh, literally, literally on the roof <laughs> of buildings having conversations with people because it's the only damn place we can go to, to try and get, get through this. And the other reason why I'm playing this is, is like when it comes to the Great Reset. Um, this year, next year, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things that, that may yet come to pass. But there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of moments in life like this for major decision makers in the world where they're going to be having a conversation like this. So, so go ahead and play the clip if you would. It's a long way down. Yes, it is. The feeling that people experience when they stand on the edge like this isn't a fear of falling. It's a fear that they might jump. Well, that's very deep and depressing. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm a little dark sometimes. All right, well, come down, please, Will. Please, come on. Will. Yeah, fuck it. Woo! Not today! <laughs> it looks like they're gonna make us dumb this shit. What? You watch. How? You'll see. How could they do that? They can't. It's impossible, but they'll figure a way. I've been in this company for ten years, and I've seen things you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't believe. When all is said and done, they do not lose money. They don't mind if everybody else does. But they don't lose. They don't lose money, no matter what. Well, did you really make two and a half million last year? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. How did you spend it all? That was quite quickly. You know, you learn to spend what's in your pocket. Two and a half million goes quickly? All right, let's see. So the tax man takes half up front, so you're left with one and a quarter. My mortgage takes another 300 grand. I sent 150 home for my parents, you know, keep them going. 
So what's that? 800. All right, 800. Spent 150 on a car, about 75 on restaurants, probably 50 on clothes. I put 400 away for a rainy day. That's smart. Yeah, as it turns out, because it looks like the storm's coming. Still got 125. Yeah, well, I did spend $76,520 on hookers, booze, and dances, but mainly hookers. <laughs> I was a little shocked initially, but then I realized I could claim most of it back as entertainment. It's true. That's all. Now, that clip do that moment in the movie justice because, and again, I'm oversimplifying, between the, the two films that I often reference, and, and I know V and CJ are fans as well, is, is both The Big Short and Margin Call. Um, the Big Short especially, but even Margin Call. They, they really deal with um, the events in 2007, 2008. And if you've watched any of the documentaries, if you watched or read any of the books about what was going on, because it wasn't just the whole thing about do we bail out certain banks or what have you and, and which banks are going to be allowed to go under. There was some real biblical crap that went down. And in my own personal life, I had some people who, who know me professionally who said, you know, we swear, to, we swear to God you're the angel of death because I was in the commercial space and then literally exit stage left and I go on to a fully funded government contract that's got five more years left of life on it. And uh, I'm safe tucked away in an R&D facility on a, on a government base. And friends of mine in the commercial sector are like terrified of their lives. People are losing their homes. Um, even in my neighborhood and, and friends of mine from all around the country are like, you know, I live in a good neighborhood. And I've got three properties with the sheriff's department outside putting signs out front saying for sale. Those were some really scary events. And in that movie, the main characters, especially the, the big boardroom scene, which I absolutely love, um, they knew those characters in that story. They knew, much like the, the real-world equivalents, they knew what that kind of an economic crash was going to do. They knew the impact it was going to have. It's like Brad Pitt from the movie um, The Big Short, where the two young guys are like, hey, we figured out this way to make money that nobody, you know, we're going to short the A rated bonds and we're going to make a shitload of cash. And, and we figured out something even the big names didn't do. And they're all high fiving each other. And, and Brad Pitt's character turns around and gets really angry with them and says, don't do that. He's like, this is why I got out of this, this high end finance world. And he, he drops some serious knowledge in that movie that I don't know most people picked up on. There's a scene where Brad Pitt says, do you understand that every time unemployment goes up by 1%, at least 10,000 or more people die. Now, I've shared this with all of you on, on prior shows. When I worked for GE, we had the quote-unquote, I say actuarial tables, but that's disingenuous. But we had tables provided us by high-end consulting firms about if you lay off X number of people in this type of metropolitan area of the United States, here's how many divorces and suicides there's going to be. I mean, that's known. If you don't live in that world, you don't know that, but, but that's known. So that's kind of the, the why that scene is so heavy is the two younger guys are kind of getting up to speed. They've never experienced this sort of thing before. But Paul Bettany's character standing there saying, I've seen some shit you wouldn't believe in this company, but they don't lose money. 
And, you know, it's like a, a gal that uh, Mike Moore has on his show periodically. Uh, she also, I think, is from out of Boston. And, and she's kind of a middle-of-the-road politically sort of person. But she was commenting about the upcoming election that we just had uh, with Joe Biden becoming president. Several months prior to that election, she, you know, uh, he asked her and said, well, how do you think this is going to – or I'm terribly sorry, it's Patrick Bet david Patrick Bet david was asking this, this gal that he has on his show periodically, what do you think is going to happen? Um, and, uh, she said, it doesn't matter. She said, the election doesn't matter. She said, the only thing that ever matters in the United States is what does big money want? Because big money is going to get what big money wants. And this kind of dovetails back into that scene. Um, they don't lose money. And, you know, the two younger characters are, are internalizing pretty, pretty fast. Now I forget the actor's name. The guy who played Spock in the new uh, Star Trek movies, you know, he's the guy that was kind of standing on the right and was the guy that was able to start rattling off those figures. But his buddy, the other guy who wasn't wearing a tie, I, I always kind of felt for that character in the film because every time something happens, that that young guy is just like in shock. Like every everything that goes down is just he doesn't know how to deal with it. And, of course, there's a scene in the movie where one of the killers in that firm has decided we're just going to sell everything. We're going to unload the whole position. And we're going to, you know, per the lines in the movie, we're going we're to blow up this market for, forever. And the young, the young guy that was standing on the left, he's, he's in the bathroom crying. And one of the top executives sees him crying coming out of the, the stall. And he's shaving in the mirror because he hasn't, like, left the office in three days. And the guy looks at him and he goes, what's wrong? And the young guy looks at him and he goes, this, this was the kind of job I always wanted, you know. And I, and I know I'm going to get fired. And and the guy's like, it's it's the actor from the TV show The Mentalist. He just goes back to shaving, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so uh, I've posted the song to uh, the Discord page, and with that, I'll open the floor to. Unless there was, I was thinking there was another question. Oh well, and also thank you all for your patience because this was a much longer uh, program than normal, and it was a lot. <laughs> uh, it was a lot in one sitting. Um, but with that, V and CJ, uh, your thoughts and, and comments and things. No, you did a great job, man. I, uh, wonderful, wonderful job. And folks, again, go back and listen to this program. There's a lot of information there. There's a lot of context here. Please go back and listen to it again because it's that vital. Uh, CJ. CJ? We've lost CJ again. <laughs> <laughs> Smithers release the hounds. <laughs> oh my god! And John He's Michael Carmine, bottle of tequila, <laughs> right? And John Michael Carmine, um to your comment about Detroit, uh, I'm pretty sure I saw you on the Discord uh, discussion yesterday, where I posted the uh, uh, the video from the guy Lado's Law, and my thanks also to Balaj guy for his input on Lado's Law about that, but where. Uh, uh, V, there was a, I don't know if you saw it or not, but the guy who does Lato's Law on YouTube, uh, he did a program about how 100,000, I mean, holy God, 100,000 properties were foreclosed on in Detroit by mistake. Oh, yeah. And like <laughs> Detroit, oh, yeah. Michigan are trying to fit because yep. yeah, Lato was like, you could sue them, but, but the whole state is in receivership. So I don't know uh, what good that's going to do. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. 
It's crazy, man. So, it's, like, it's it's like uh, people who uh, I've had clients who I had a client years ago. They were foreclosed on, even though they are current on their mortgage payments. Yeah, and this is this is also you know one of the things I learned during the whole foreclosure thing was uh, the backlog was unbelievable. Number one, number two, I was dealing with a guy personally that was an absolute criminal that was in court. And processing that person's bankruptcy took two and a half years, even though courts were demanding this guy's property be seized. And the banks and everybody else were like, we, we just can't get to it. And I had a person in my neighborhood who both he and his wife, in a, in a stunning moment, they both got laid off and started missing mortgage payments and stuff. And he picked up the phone and just called the bank and said, look, uh, I'm going to start doing, you know, 1099 consulting work and I'll be flat out honest with you. Here's the next three clients I got. And here's the kind of money I'm going to be earning from that. And what if I just started making payments of this per month and we can work out the detail later? The bank was like, sounds good to us. We, Jesus, man, we do not want to have to deal with yet another damn house that we got to unload. So you know what? Come on, stop by. We'll work up some paperwork. Gentlemen's agreement. We'll work out something. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll work this out, but anyway, so, um, we'll be back next or I'll be back next Friday, uh, barring, <laughs> barring any issues. <laughs> and, uh, I hope you all have, uh, a good weekend and, uh, a good start to your, to your next week and stay tuned. And for those of you who have not yet joined discord, uh, please do be any, any final inputs from no. you. No, that's it. Folks, thank you all for listening in. We'll be back uh, Monday. Uh, same Rogue News channel, same Rogue News chime right here on Twitch and DLive. Uh, YouTube is still being worked on. I mean, they literally nuked all the APIs and links. It's been a pain in the ass trying to put it all back together. Yeah, we'll yeah, be I was back gonna, on YouTube. Yeah, Listen. I was going to ask you, what's the, what was our status on YouTube? Uh, I think this coming week we we should be up. Uh, we were supposed to be up this week, then we've the, the the links weren't working. It's been really big. I don't know what the hell they did. I think YouTube systems are really messed up. I think their systems completely screwed up on their on their end. But they broke a lot of the linkage that that used to work. A lot of the APIs. It's been kind of screwy. So now we're just re-engineering, re-connecting uh, everything. So I think probably by this coming week we should be good. Yeah, Randy GCO or anyone else, uh, you want to send an email to CJ, which is CJ at roguenews.com, um, and just send him an email and say you want to be added to what's called the Discord server. It's for those of you who may be unfamiliar, Discord's kind of like a chat environment. Uh, Frank, from quite frankly, has a page. We here at Rogue News have a page. And uh, there's various uh, named like little folders and stuff where, where people discuss various topics and stuff uh, out there or post post videos and things. Um, thank you to whoever posted the the link there. Um, yeah, and the the YouTube thing, V. Not to beat that one to death, but um, it's been said by many. It's not just us. Um, it's you know the night of the long knives is coming again. It 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 probably is going to be in July or August, if not earlier. Uh, I mean. We've been targeted before, which is <laughs> just a reminder, everybody, which is why you you Twitch or the Rogue News website or Rumble or wherever you or D Live, wherever you may find us. Um, yeah, I totally agree with CJ and V that that once we're back on YouTube, that's that's going to be just a, a opportunity to redirect the folks who who lost us yet again uh, where to where to find us. But we're going to have to keep it as purely an informational redirect 
because I'm telling you, anybody in the alternative space, I, I don't care if it's Steve Leto, who just talks about legal issues. Uh, prior to the midterms, uh, man, they're, they're going to do it again, just like they did the last time. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But, but, but it's already kind of started. They're going to start pulling people uh, out of YouTube again to try and cut off the supply of information. And I, I have a feeling, V, one of the, the things we're probably encountering with them is, is a result of that that there's just so much of that activity going on, trying to turn the lights on for us again is, is just going to take a while. Absolutely. Folks, we're at the end of the program. Thank you all for listening in. We'll be back next week. And with that being said, we're over and out.